It's time to write a new story. This is Success Stories with Madison Piper. It's the place where women discuss how to make an impact. Here's your host, Madison Piper. Before we start this episode, I want you to do something for me, okay? And you might think it sounds crazy, but I want you to look at yourself in the mirror, dead in the eyes, right? You doing that? I wanted you to tell yourself out loud with a stern voice, I am more than a to-do list. Being busy does not define me and my worth is not in my responsibilities. I am allowed to do things for me. Now, I doubt any of you actually did that, but at least you have this reminder in your head as we go into this episode, because that's what today's episode is all about. Today, we bring in Natalie Kogan, a serial entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and best-selling author on a mission to help millions of people struggle less and thrive more by strengthening their emotional fitness skills. Now, Natalie is obviously a very successful woman, but her journey to success wasn't an easy one. In fact, it took a lot of grit and hard work. See, at 13 years old, Natalie was a refugee from the former Soviet Union. See, at 13 years old, Natalie was a refugee from the former Soviet Union. She just moved to a country where she didn't speak the language, and there was a time period where her family had to use food stamps to survive. But her experience left her determined to create more, to build more, and to one day have the life for herself that could afford her of all of the luxuries and assets that she had dreamed of as that 13-year-old girl. She wanted to one day take care of her family and achieve success and live a life that would award the struggle that she once went that would award and live a life that would award the struggle that she once went through. But for her, success and productivity were synonymous, and they meant busy. If you weren't exhausted by the end of the day, you weren't working hard enough until one day she faced burnout. Her burnout, though, led her to realize that a mindset of busyness was not sur- Her burnout, though, led her to realize that a mindset of busyness was not sustainable, and her unwillingness to put herself first at times was negatively impacting other areas of her life, so she needed to create a change. And her recipe for change has positively impacted the lives of thousands of people across the globe today. So today we bring in Natalie, and she shares her story. She shares her tips on achieving emotional fitness and what the true definition of self-care really is, and she helps you... Start realizing today that busyness is not productivity, so you can create change in your life. So Natalie, thank you for joining us here today on Success Stories. We are so excited to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here and have this conversation. So you cover a lot about burnout and you talk a lot about happiness, but I want to start from the beginning on how you even got to covering those topics and how you became an expert. So you moved here from Russia at 13 years old and lived on food stamps, and you really had to work hard to get to where you are now. So let's talk about from the beginning. Yeah. um, uh, I came here as a refugee when I was a teenager with my parents. And, you know, I I love starting there because I was asked the other day, what was that experience like? And I said, well, it's been 32 years and I'm experiencing it um, every day. That experience um, became so core to my identity, and it still is, to all the choices I make to who I am. Um, so I, I think it's great to start there. So yeah, we I grew up in the former Soviet Union and we um, were Jewish, so we were persecuted. Jews were persecuted at the time. So when we left, we left with nothing. We spent a couple months in refugee settlements applying for permission to come to the U.S. as refugees. And so at 13 and a half, I was you know, beginning this American dream and excited about it, but also just completely lost. I mean, I hardly spoke English. I 
you know, didn't know what was going on. The only identity I'd had at that time was I was a really good student. And all of a sudden I was in remedial classes well, because I couldn't understand anything. And I think it's such an important place to start because what that experience kind of cemented in me without my being conscious of it at the time was that, you know, anything important or meaningful that I would achieve in my life, and it would come with struggle. And I sort of began to see life as struggle was inevitable, right? And the other thing that came out of that was, you know, the only thing I had going for me was hard work. I'd always been a hard worker. I still am. I I love working. And so I kind of threw my entire being into working hard and obviously learning English and success and achievement. And I kind of had this mantra that I'd had for most of my career of, you know, um, I'll be happy when, like, I'll be, you know, this is struggle, this is really challenging, but I'll be happy when I achieve success and I make enough money to take care of my family. And, you know, I, um, in many ways, I'm very grateful for the drive that I, that this instilled in me. Um, and it also, you know, just the positive side of it, maybe really resilient. And by that, I mean, you know, the definition of resilience that I think um, many of us misunderstand, but resilience is your ability to um, positively adapt amidst adversity. And well, there was a lot of adversity in my life and I sort of had to learn. And so it gave me this um, quality that I still have. Like my daughter said it to me the other day, which, you know, we're talking about women of impact. I have a 17 year old daughter. So being a good role model to her is really important to me. And she said, you know, it's kind of like you always have this attitude of like, okay, like nothing is impossible. Let me just figure it out. And so I'm grateful for that. But the flip side was that I kind of put hard work and achievement above anything else. And that meant above my own mental health or emotional health. Like actually, to be honest, I never even thought about these things. Like I'm not sure I I knew these things existed, but it just didn't matter to me how I felt. And I was struggling. I was exhausted and overwhelmed. I was very critical of myself. I just didn't think, I thought that's the way you're supposed to be, right? You're supposed to struggle if you're going to do important things. And so that is how I spent, you know, 20 years of my career. And I had a very successful career by all measures. You know, I graduated top my class at Wesleyan. I went to work at McKinsey, the very, very famous consulting company. Um, I happier as the fifth startup that I either started or was part of the founding team. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. You know, I I did marry my college sweetheart. We celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary the other day. We have a beautiful daughter named Mia. I even bought my parents a fancy car. Like I really wanted to, you know, honor the struggle. And like all of that was meaningful to me, but it was ne- it never felt like it was fulfilling because I was always chasing something else because I never felt like I was enough and I never felt like I was doing enough. And um, that's how I spent my life and my career for 20 years until several years ago, I suffered a debilitating burnout. And when I say I burnt out, I mean, I literally stopped being able to function as a leader, as a founder, as a mom, which is so, so painful to say. Um, And that oddly, and maybe not so oddly, was the beginning of this journey that would bring me to doing what I do now, which is I teach emotional fitness skills to teams and leaders and women leaders and companies. About half of my work is with women leaders because that's when I had to really face the fact that the way I was living and working was not sustainable and actually ignoring my emotional mental health was not the right thing because it was hurting the very people and the work I cared about. And that's what brought me to doing what I do now. 
So I want to ask you a little bit about your experience with burnout, especially as a mom, as a woman in the workplace. I feel like a lot of people don't feel like they can burn out. Even if they are burning out, they're still burning the candle at both ends, Mm. right? And they're just continue letting it light and just, you know, you're eventually becoming fumes. Day by day, you're becoming fumes. So how did you stop and say, okay, this is what's happening. And if I don't fix it, I'm going to be left with nothing. How did you come to terms with that and get out on the other side? Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, in my book, I talk about this idea of daily burnout, which is something I think so many of us experience, right? So the burnout I suffered, I actually really just went dark. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't go to work anymore. And it was many years in the making. But during those years, I was suffering daily burnout. And it's what you just described. Like it's at the end of the day, we have nothing, right? I talk about this idea that we all have this energy reservoir as human beings. And if we don't fill it, by doing things that fuel us, by getting enough sleep, by creating a more supportive relationship with ourselves, all the things we do will drain it. And so I think what you're talking about, so many people experience is this idea of like, at the end of the day, I've got nothing. Now, I just want to be really honest in my answer to your question. My decision to change my life was not something I made um, willingly. And what I mean by that is, um, In retrospect, of course, I can see that I was really hitting bottom. I mean, I stopped being able to make decisions at work. Uh, I'm a talker. I speak for a living. But I remember being in meetings and my teammates, and I was a leader, I was a CEO, and my teammates would be like, Natalie, do you have anything to say? Because I would black out, right? So I I can see those things in retrospect, but I wasn't aware of them at the time. And it wasn't until I truly came to a place where... um, nothing was working and everything, my company, my marriage, my life was at risk that I changed. So it wasn't like, oh, I got to change. I just want to be honest about that. This is why I do what I do is I'm trying to catch people before that moment. But the thing that I would um, share, and this is what I talk about a lot with women leaders I work with and everyone I work with is a core skill to develop is awareness, right? Just a very simple practice of once a day checking in with yourself and just asking yourself like, well, how am I? It's what we do with our friends, with our colleagues, with people we love. We just don't do it with ourselves. And just asking yourself like, how, how is my energy today? And if the answer is consistently, you know what, I'm, I, I don't have any, then that is the opportunity to do something small to shift. And I know that it's challenging. I know people's to-do lists are long. And believe me, like I lead two leadership groups every year. One of them is for women leaders. I know what it's like to be a busy um, professional, but I can also tell you, and I've now worked with hundreds of thousands of people, every single one of us has an opportunity to shift something in ourselves and our days to give ourselves some fuel. We all can make that choice. So- I feel like a lot of moms out there are put this idea, people put this idea on them that the busier you are, that deserves mm. to be celebrated. It's almost going through burnout. It's like a celebratory thing. It shows mm. that you're doing your job well and you're doing it right. But at the end of the day, you completely forget to take care of yourself. And it's like, you don't matter. Everything else matters. Work, mm. your kids, your family, your home, all of that matters, but you don't matter. How can you help women escape that mindset? Yeah, it's, you know, what you're talking about, the way that I write about it in my book and what the way I interpret it, you know, I, I became this martyr as a mother. And I, I believed, I mean, first of all, Mia, my daughter, um, who's now 17, by the way, and 
her room is behind mine. So she listens to a lot of these interviews. I'm really open with her about this. So I kind of not just put everything about her and being her mother at the top of my list and myself last, but everything else. And as you said, it's not just the busyness, it's the putting yourself last that like that felt right to me, you know, and we get these messages as working moms. We get them from everywhere. We get them from our families. We get them from our society. I mean, when I call my grandma and my grandma, I grew up really close with my grandparents. They came with us from Russia and um, my grandma and my grandpa, they were with me most of my adult life. They only died in the last couple of years. I remember calling my grandma from the car. I was actually coming home from a board meeting to tell her I was pregnant. And, you know, I told her we lived in New York. They lived in Boston. So I did it on the phone and, you know, she cried. And, and then once she kind of calmed down with excitement, she said to me, Natashenka, it's my Russian name. She said, so now you understand the most important thing in your life is your daughter and you need to come at the end last. That's what my grandma said to me. And the thing is, I am not alone. These are messages we get as working moms. And so no wonder that it feels correct to put ourselves last. And uh, I, there's, um, uh, I don't even know the right word for it, but there was almost like, I remember, you know, I was at one point working in venture capital, a really intense field. There's fewer than 6% women in it. So really intense work. And Mia was little, she was like a year or two. And so my days were crazy. And so on Sundays, I would do this marathon cooking session where, because God forbid, Mia would have anything but a home-cooked meal every day because that's the other thing is perfection, perfection, right? Women, I feel like we get these messages. Perfect mom, perfect professional, and you look perfect, and you work out five times a day. And also, you're relaxed and calm, right? All the things. So on Sunday evenings, after she went to bed and after I caught up on work at like midnight, I would be cooking up these meals for the week. And I literally remember being so exhausted, like my arms hurt from mixing things. But the reason I'm telling you this is there was this part of me that was proud to be suffering this much. It was like, look, I'm a working mom, but look how much I am suffering for the good of my daughter. And this hurts to say, but like that made me feel good. And I do think this is this element of the smarter idea. So, you know, what do we do? Here is the thing that um, I talk a lot about to working moms who are, you know, um, maybe in that situation is... Together with those home-cooked meals and the perfect play dates and all the other perfection that I try to deliver to Mia's life, you know what else I gave her? A stressed out, exhausted mom who would often snap at her without intending to, um, who brought this really heavy energy into her life. Again, like I, you know, I've talked about this on stages of 20,000 people and I still get goosebumps. It's painful to say, but I think it's really important to acknowledge and this is the mantra that I sort of realized, like you cannot give what you don't have. You cannot, you just can't. And I thought I was giving everything to my work and to Mia, but I was not that great at my work because I constantly was, you know, putting this heaviness on myself and this uh, martyr identity. And also I gave a lot of stress to Mia. You know, I invited her to one of the workshops I did for women leaders. I actually invited her. We didn't rehearse it. And I said, well, can you talk about how it was when I like never took care of myself or did anything for myself? And like her body immediately tensed up. You can't fake it. And she said, you know, of course I knew you always loved me, but things were really tense. And she said, I remember one time she was talking about herself. I was cutting a tomato in the kitchen 
and you came in and went off because I was not using a serrated knife and you were afraid I would cut myself. And then you realized you were screaming and you started crying and apologizing. She's like, that's how things were. Like you would snap and then you would feel bad and everything was like drama. She said, and now that you like take care of yourself, it's not like everything is perfect, but you focus more on like the problem or I did something wrong. So you tell me about it. And I share this with you and all the listeners, just hopefully as a way to share something really painful that really helped me break through this smarter identity, this recognition that if we put ourselves last, we actually are not being mothers in the way that I know you want to be. We're not being, um, not showing up to our kids, or our work in a way that I know we want to be. And the only way to change that is we have to fuel our own tank. You know, as you're talking about this, I, I was thinking about when you said that your grandma looked at you and said, you know, you come last now, right? And I feel like that's a generational thing. I hate saying mm. it's a generational thing, but I think as, you know, the generations pass, it's becoming more and more normal and accepted and honestly celebrated to take care of yourself. But a few years ago, that, you know, or decades ago, that wasn't celebrated. Like you were not mm. supposed to do that. That made you a bad mom or a bad woman, right? Um, being selfish. But it's... It's not selfish. So when did you, I mean, you talk about when you realized that you needed to start taking care of yourself, but what were those first few steps Mm. that you took to take care of you? Because I feel like sometimes when people think self-care, they think bath bombs and spa days. And yes, that's self-care, but there's so much more to it than that, right? Yes. And those are actually, I'm actually, my daughter is a big fan of bath bombs and spa day. Yes, you can take me any day. But those are, um, I would say those like a sprinkle Like if you think of self-care as a Sunday, almost that's like a tiny little sprinkle and that's where our culture is focused on. So the first thing I want to say is I agree with you. And actually one of the biggest motivators for me to shift how I was as a working mom was my daughter. Like I wanted her, I wanted to break that cycle. I wanted her to see me resting and painting and doing things just for me so that she would learn that that is how she should be. And she became a great partner for me. All my books are dedicated to her. Um, In the front, there is a dedication to her because she really is my guide. Um, And I love now, like, it'll come up from time to time where I'll say, so I paint, I began to um, kind of allow the artist within me to come out after my burnout, which is something else we can talk about. Allowing yourself to do things for joy, for no other reason. That is part of self-care. And so the other, it was a weekend and I'd been working a lot and I was talking about painting. And then I said to me, I was like, yeah, but then I missed hanging out with you. And she looked at me like very sternly and she was like, uh, excuse me. No, no, no. Uh, What do we do when we need to fuel our tank? Like if you don't do something that brings you joy. And it was just like, that's great. Like she's become a great mirror. And I hear this from so many working moms. Like we can, we can break that cycle. That can be a great motivator. But so what do you do? So the first thing I just want to share, like the steps that I started to take, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what self-care was. I had, so if you are listening to this and you're like, I don't even know what self-care means to me, I want you to know you are not alone. I cannot tell you how many times I lead these workshops with like women leaders and I talk about this little practice of having, I call it a 15 minute daily fuel up. So having 15 minutes on your calendar every day where you do something to fuel your energy And what they say to me is, I don't even know what that is. Like, so I don't want you to feel alone. If you're listening to this, you're like, I don't know what you, I didn't because I just never cared about that. So that's your first step is to sit down and think about 
Like make it a little brainstorm with yourself. Just think about what fuels my energy. I had to do this. I felt really stupid doing it, but you shouldn't feel stupid because we live in a society that doesn't talk about that. We talk about being more productive, hacking your inbox to zero, right? So I started to discover, like I had to create, that's why I define emotional fitness as creating a more supportive relationship with yourself. So I had to learn, I don't know, what fuels my energy. And I discovered some things, Madison, that I'd never considered. For example, I discovered that I really need quiet time. Like I have a lot of energy. I love people, but actually I really need quiet time. And so that was a big thing is I changed the music I listened to. I made sure I had quiet time every morning of my day. Uh, one of the other things I um, just kind of had to learn is I need to do something creative. That's what fuels me. So I started to allow myself to paint, which is something I wanted to do my entire life, but never let myself because what did that have to do with being a great mom and a great leader? Nothing. It was selfish and indulgent. So I started to do some watercolor. And so I invite you to do this little brainstorm with yourself. Make a quick list of all the things that fuel your energy. And again, think about emotional energy, mental energy, physical energy, right? For some people, running fuels your energy. For me, it's a worse form of torture, <laughs> right? We all fuel differently. I take a walk every day. I'm not a runner. For some people, quiet time. For other people, it's dancing around their room. But knowing that's a first step is just to identify a couple of things that fuel your energy and which is something I want to say, the way that I define self-care is it is a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. That is what self-care is. So if you think of yourself as this having this energy reservoir that I mentioned, right? Everything you do throughout the day takes your emotional, mental, and physical energy. So you need to refuel. So what fuels your mental energy? One thing for me, again, is um, I love to read biographies like of artists and writers and thinkers so something that I try to do most days, not every day, be compassionate with yourself, with your expectations of self-care. But most days I try to read like five to 10 pages out of a book of biography of someone that I'm interested in. So make that quick list for yourself. And again, just think about self-care as a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. And how can you do something small every day to fuel that reservoir? You know, it's really awesome to hear you say that your daughter looked at you and was like, ah, uh -uh. like, you know, what do we do when we're, you know, we're stressed out? What do we make time for and everything? And then that's kind of how you fell back into art because honestly, I'm going to give a little personal anecdote. I mean, if that's Please. okay, but like my, to. my mom um, was an art major in college. She's been an artist her whole life. She started her own business. She's, I mean, she's my, my everything, right? I love my mother, um, but she hasn't picked up a paintbrush and- 20 years. Wow. You know, when I was growing up, we had these big, beautiful paintings in our home that she did. And she just doesn't do that anymore. And that was something mm. that she loved, but she doesn't do that anymore because her business and her family and her, you know, making a home and doing all of these things. And we're grown adults and still she just doesn't feel like she has the time to pour mm. into something for herself that she loves so much. So I'm talking to you and I'm looking in the background right now and I see those paintings. I'm guessing those are yours? Those are mine, yes. Even the cover of my book. Um, I it love has that. one of my paintings on it, yeah. That's amazing. And it, it's it's great to hear that like that is self-care and to hear somebody recognize like that that is self-care, doing things that you enjoy. It's not just about getting your manicure, or your pedicure or hygiene 
right? There's so exactly, much more Exactly, which is how our it. culture, you know, is positioned. I mean, it's funny just to share. First of all, it's really meaningful for you to share that about your mom. And I hope you share this episode with her. And, you know, m- my daughter is my best friend. So I'm also just touched hearing you talk that way about your mom. I'm definitely after this interview going to run into her room and be like, Mia, this woman, <laughs> Madison, interviewed me and she's older than you. And her and her mom are still BFFs because Mia's <laughs> going to college next year. So we're constantly like, we're so close and we're so grateful that I'm constantly like, wait, we're still going to be close, right? Even though that you're in college, we're going to figure it out, right? So you just gave me a gift. But, you know, this this idea that doing something that brings you joy is important, again, is something that I feel like has become so de-emphasized in our culture. I cannot tell you how many, again, very successful women executives or entrepreneurs that I work with, and they tell me like things like you just said about your mom. They'll say, you know, all kind of things like I used to garden or cook or cycle or sing or take photos. And I just haven't done it because I don't know how to prioritize it because there's my work and my kids and, you know, like taking care of the family. And yet when they start to do it, which is the experience that I had, I cannot tell you how many of them come back and they're like, oh my God, not only like has it completely changed my inner experience of my life away from it being this like struggle and actually something I enjoy, but my family is happier and I've gotten all these new ideas and my business is better because the thing we have to realize is joy is fuel. Mm -hmm. Doing something that brings you joy is a direct way to fuel your energy. And when you have more energy, you can do more stuff. You have more of your intellectual, creative, analytical, productive capacity to bring to your work and take care of your kids and your business. So it's it, it's something that is additive, right? So you spend an, I spend an hour painting. I have all these ideas that come to my mind. And then I come up the stairs from my little studio and I'm like a bundle of joy. So my family gets more. I, when I started to paint, I mean, I, I literally, it was just something that I've always wanted to do. But Madison, now, not only is there art, and I loved hearing you talk about how there's art in your house, because there's art all over our house. That's my art. And I love and like hearing my daughter and my husband go, I love that your art is in our house. But so not just that they love the art, but I am a human being who brings more light. I am someone who spreads joy instead of the heaviness or the snappiness or the exhaustion And also there's so many ways that my art has now grown into my business. I teach creativity workshops to executives. I'm launching my first NFT art collection for all of you listening who are familiar with crypto and NFT um, of 100 awesome human abstract um, drawings to go along with my book. There's so much that has actually grown into my business. I make these art calendars every year that we sell in our community that bring other people joy. Your joy is contagious. Your joy is your fuel. And I believe your joy is your responsibility. It's your responsibility to everyone you care about because I am a better human being when I do things that fuel my energy. You know, in our last interview, you had an analogy that just clicked for me and it made a lot of sense. And you're talking about fuel. So I'd love to talk about that again because it was about the fuel in a car versus the fuel in our life, right? Mm. The fuel in a car, when your car starts to run out of gas, you don't think, oh, I don't have time to get gas. I'm just going to just keep going. You go and you get gas, yes. right? Yes. I mean, this analogy, I actually came up with it when I was working on my book. And in my book, there's the five emotional fitness skills. One of them is self-care. And I, 
you know, I do so much work, um, you know, 80% of the people in my audience are professional women. And I was trying to think of like, how do I get through this objection of I don't have time? Because I get two objections for self-care, guilt, and we just talked about a lot of ways to get through that, and then time. So I was trying to think of it, and I realized I just, it was like two days before I had to go fill up my car with gas because it was almost empty. And I realized I was like, the car needs gas or electricity, if you have an electric car, to do its job of being a car. Like, it's not a luxury, it just needs it. And I was like, wait, we as human beings, we need energy, emotional, mental, and physical energy to do our job of being human, the work, the family stuff. So, and I had this moment, I was like, never, like, never in my life have I asked this. I mean, it's a ridiculous question. Like, my car is low on gas, but does it deserve to get gas? Do I have to? No, that's ridiculous. We don't ask these questions. You know that when it runs out, you're not going to be able to drive. And yet with ourselves, we're like, wow, I'm exhausted. I am emotionally drained, but you know what? I, I don't have 20 minutes to do something for myself. No, I want to call like, I hope, I don't know if I can say this, but I want to call bullshit on that mm -hmm. because we all have 15 to 20 minutes a day to fuel up. We all have it. Five less minutes of reading the news, 10 less minutes of mindlessly scrolling social media. There's your 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it, it does take honesty it does take awareness. This is why, you know, I talk about awareness so much. Just this awareness that, wow, I'm sitting here writing these emails at 10 p.m. and these emails are crap and I'm not turning out anything of quality anymore and I need to shut down this computer right now and go and do whatever it is that's fueling. Quiet time, yoga, run, bath, whatever. Bath bombs make you feel good. Go do that. But it takes awareness and it takes honesty that just because you're sitting there doing the work doesn't actually mean the work's any good. And it's actually taking you longer when you're an empty. And so um, the car analogy is my way to cut through this argument that I just don't have the time. Well, you need to make the time because mm -hmm. when the car runs out of gas, you can't say, I don't have time to get gas. You know, you have to get gas. Exactly. And in, like, isn't it funny when we think about things we're like, okay, well, it's inconvenient if we end up stranded on the side of the road because we didn't make the 15 minutes to take care of our car, right? But you don't think about the inconvenience of putting out bad work or of yelling at your kids or of losing your temper on your spouse or, you know, whatever it may be. You don't think about that inconvenience. You don't think about yourself and everything you'd be putting yourself through, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the, that's the missing mm -hmm. piece, right? That's mm -hmm. why, you know, I, I, that's why I do the work that I do is I want to bring this into light, right? That's why I share things that are really painful to say that while I was, you know, trying to be this perfect mom with the perfectly cooked meals and I'm always home by bath time and then I'm doing work at three in the morning, that I wasn't just bringing those good things. I was also bringing bad things. I was bringing the stress and the tension. Like I actually, I can recall Madison, like the heaviness in me that I shared with others. It's not that I loved my daughter any less. I did not. She is my light. She is my love. Like if you're a mother listening to this, you know, you can never love your child less. But there was less of me that was full of light and presence. I also was really impatient. And it's something I hear a lot from working moms when they get honest with themselves. What they realize is when they don't do things to fuel their energy, they're, they're really impatient. 
and um, with their kids, with their spouses, with their friends, with their coworkers. And so what you're saying is that's exactly the thing to realize. It's not a zero sum game. It's not like you can give, 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 and it's all positive. If you are doing it from empty, you're doing it with a lot of resentment. You're doing it with a lot of stress. You're doing it with a lot of heaviness that everyone else has to deal with. And so that's why I talk about self-care is the least selfish thing you can do. It is an act of love towards every single person you care about. Exactly. And I mean, if you're not partaking in self-care because you think it's selfish, you're losing yourself in the process. You're becoming, you know, selfless, I guess, if you will, right? Um, But another thing I want to talk about is, I mean, obviously you have shattered glass ceilings. You've accomplished a lot in your life. Um, and with those accomplishments, I mean, nothing worth having comes easy. There's a lot Mm. of stress that happens in the workplace. So yes, self-care is really important, but aside from self-care, what can you do to keep that stress there and not bring it home to your family, to your life, you know, outside? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, a great question. And the thing, I just want to say something about stress, right? So something kind of, um, that has been really helpful for me to understand is there's a difference between challenge and struggle. So challenges in life and work are inevitable, right? And things happen all the time and we don't have control, but, and and they cause a lot of stress and anxiety and it's natural, but struggle is something that is internal and we can learn how to struggle less, even when things are stressful or challenging. And the way we do that is we create a more supportive relationship with ourselves, right? So I think it makes sense if you think about if something is really hard and stressful, if you can support yourself through it, through self-compassion and self-care and self-kindness and practicing these other skills, you actually experience less struggle as you work through it. And so there is this difference between external stress and how much struggle you take in. And just a couple of things in terms of kind of not bringing it home or into your own life. Um, one really tactical uh, suggestion, which I think is also really important now, especially since so many people are working from home, the boundaries are really fluid. And by the way, I experienced this, right? I run my own business. My work is, you know, it's me speaking or writing or talking. And then like, I'm speaking to you right now from my home office. And then I leave and there's my daughter and my husband. And so often it's like, everything flows over. So one of the really important things to think about is how can you create uh, a boundary between like my work stuff and my home stuff. And a couple of suggestions that are really t- simple, but they're really important. So one is our brain responds really well to physical cues. So simple things like closing your laptop, putting away your phone, like close some kind of an action that says to your brain, I am now going to close this chapter of the day is really helpful. So what I do is I you know, I have this laptop. So I like shut it down when I'm done. I put my phone in this little charger and I actually physically close the door. Not that I never come into this room again at the end of the day, but that gives my brain kind of a, oh, okay, now we're shifting. And so any kind of little ritual that you can come up with to tell your brain, this is what I'm doing. And now this is a pause and I'm going to focus on my family or my friends. It doesn't matter what the ritual is. You could spin around five times and leave the room. It's just that you do the same thing every day. Your brain will start to shift. The other thing um, that I want to, and this is something I've been talking about a lot, is I really hate the word work-life balance. I hate it, hate it, hate it, because it's complete BS, right? Because it puts work and life in opposition. Work is part of life. 
So is painting. So is hanging out with your friends. So is um, spending time with your family. So is washing the dishes. These are all part of life. And so I feel like that's something that actually causes additional stress. When I hear so many women tell me like, you know, I get so stressed out, like I'm done with my work for the day and I'm with my family, but I can't stop thinking about work. And they're like really stressed out because their work life is not balanced. So I like to more think about, um, it's a dynamic life balance. And what I mean by that is we're, we want to create an opportunity for different parts of ourselves to find expression. So there's time for work stuff. There's time for family stuff. There's time for personal stuff, not all of it in the same day. And so that my specific advice for like, if you are done with your work stuff for the day and maybe you're with your family, but you're finding that your brain is just ruminating. Oh my God, I didn't do that. I should do that. Don't cause yourself additional stress by making yourself feel like crap that, oh my God, I'm thinking about work while I'm with my kids. Practice acceptance. And acceptance is not passive. It's not saying, okay, whatever it is. Acceptance is saying, okay. So right now my brain is really focused on this one work thing. And then asking yourself, given this is how it is and how I feel, what is the best thing I can do right now to move forward? You know what that is sometimes? Sometimes that is saying to my family, all right, you guys, I know we're having dinner and I do this like, I wish my family could be here because they would like tell you this is true. I know we're having dinner, but I have this one email that I just need to go write because if I don't do it, my brain is going to keep me busy on it. And they're like, yeah, go. And you go and you do that thing. Or if you're ruminating on stuff you need to do at work tomorrow, jot it down. Don't worry about so much about this clear separation. Worry more about being able to give your full attention to what you're doing. And the things I'm sharing are just some tactical ways to help you. Um, if your brain is stressing about something, jot it down, go take care of it. Don't create additional stress by trying to force yourself. No, 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 it's the weekend. I don't do work on the weekends. I cannot tell you how many women tell me that causes them so much stress. They're like, it's the weekend. I promise myself I'm not going to work, but all I'm thinking about is this one email. Go write the email. But mm -hmm. practice this acceptance openly. Tell your family, listen, you guys, I'm totally obsessing about this one thing. If I can just take an hour right now and do it, then I can come back and feel lighter. I can guarantee your family is going to be like, yes, please go. Because what our families want from us is not some perfect vision of like, I am with family. I am not thinking about work. They want you. They want you with your presence and your energy and your attention and the more that I practice this in my own life and the more that I share this with tens of thousands of women, I've never heard a single woman, you know, Madison, come back to me and say, you know, I said this to my family and they were like, no, actually, no, dude. They said, yes, please, whatever it is that you need to do so you can be present. So those are just some suggestions for how to better reduce internal struggle mm -hmm. when you have some external stress and integrate work and family time together. And does that work like oppositely too? I feel like that could work opposite. Like if you're working and the only thing that you can think about is, oh, my, my daughter had a horrible day at school. She's having a really hard time right now. And all you can think about while you're trying to write the email is your daughter, then it's okay to step away for 20 minutes, one hour and go take care of your daughter and then come back to it. Yes. Right. The one thing to realize, so I, you know, I'm a, a neuroscience geek. I love to study the brain because what it does is it helps me understand why I react in certain ways. And it helps me kind of create a more cooperative relationship with my thoughts. And so the, the reason I say this is I want to kind of give you all like a, a, a maybe a model to think about your brain. So your brain is a little child, right? 
Um, our brain basically only cares about one thing. It's our survival. It only wants to keep us safe from danger. Your brain does not care about work-life balance or you being a great mom or you being happy or your joy. Your brain doesn't care about that. It wants to keep you safe from danger. And to do that, it's always looking out for possible danger, right? And so um, it's developed certain characteristics because of that. It's overly negative. It's got a negativity bias because danger usually come with negative stimuli. It hates uncertainty. It'll ruminate on things. It'll create makeup stories because of uncertainty and other things. And so if you think of your brain as a small child, right, when a small child is upset about something, what works? We're talking to working moms. I'll tell you a couple of things that never worked when my daughter was upset, ignoring her. You, when my daughter was like, you know, two or three and she was upset about something, I couldn't just ignore her. It would just get worse. That's your brain when it's like upset, like thinking about, oh, my daughter had a tough day at school. Like your brain is like that small child. Like I am really upset about this. It doesn't work to ignore it. It doesn't work to yell at it to stop. I want you to approach it. In my book, I talk about this idea, channel your inner grandparent. How would a grandparent deal with an upset child? Well, there's this wisdom about a grandparent, right? Like there's a warmth, there's an understanding, but also there's an ability to shift. And so the reason I'm saying this is when you're at work and you have this ongoing thought of like, oh my God, I really wish like I could just spend 20 minutes talking to my daughter right now or just taking care of this thing. It's draining your energy. It is draining your focus. It is getting in the way of you getting productive. If you would just do the grandparent thing and pay attention to it and acknowledge it and see how you can address it, it's going to allow you to not waste all that energy. So be the grandparent. I love that. I love be the grandparent. That's got me thinking about my grandma. And I remember she thought everything could be fixed with a cup of coffee. And it really could. Like if you and think it about really it. could. Because like, that pause. Yes. And it wasn't about the coffee. You know, it could have been water. But whenever we were stressed out or anything, she'd say, why don't you just come in and we'll have a cup of coffee? And she'd just drink a cup of coffee with you and talk about it. And it took, what, 20, 30 minutes, and you just left feeling so at ease. And why is that? It's such a great example. It wasn't that your grandma probably solved all your problems in life because no grandparent can do that, and many problems are not solvable. They're just challenges. But she gave you an opportunity to just put it down for a moment. She gave you an opportunity to just be. And that is such a gift that we can give to each other, but also that is the, the, the beautiful thing about awareness and acceptance, which are these emotional fitness skills that I talk about a lot, is by acknowledging our emotions and our feelings, right? Often, like if you feel stressed or worried or another difficult feeling, like we all, I think, have this instinct to not give it attention. Like so many people tell me, like, I feel like if I acknowledge it, it'll just swallow me whole. Well, actually, research shows the opposite. When you accept and acknowledge your difficult feelings and name them and actually allow yourself to feel them like your grandma allowed you to feel whatever it is you felt, research shows we get through them faster and we feel them less intensely because instead of them having control over us, we become the witness to them. We build a little bit of objectivity, a little bit of distance, which allows us to figure out how to move through them how to support ourselves through them. And sometimes they just, we realize they're not as big of a deal. That's the gift your grandma and her cup of coffee gave to you. That's the gift we can give to each other. When we just pause and practice awareness and be like, well, how am I feeling right now? What am I really stressing out about? Okay, I'm really worried about this. I'm kind of sad about this. And you play that grandparent. You acknowledge your feelings with compassion like your grandma and presence and some patience. And you give yourself that, 
place to witness your feelings versus be absorbed by them, it helps you to move through them. Just like I felt it in your voice when you talked about your grandma, you you feel lightness because the feelings become something you're experiencing versus something that controls you. That makes so much sense. And I'm, I'm glad I shared that story and you ended up explaining it because now I'm like, okay, that's why coffee solved all my problems. You know, <laughs> it wasn't the coffee, <laughs> um, but just acknowledging it. And isn't it funny? Like you have me thinking like the way that we treat our colleagues and our friends and our siblings and the people in our life when they're having a hard time, we're like, you need a day off. You need to take a day off and just breathe. But when we're talking about ourselves, we just, we can't afford to take a day off. I can't afford to, to take a day off or take time for myself or, you know, do what I need to do because I've got so much on my plate. But when we're talking to other people, we give them advice that we'd never take ourselves. I don't it's, know. What you're talking about is self-compassion, right? And this is one of the most important skills. I think it's part of self-care, but actually it's so important. It stands on its own. This is the skill of treating yourself like you would a friend, right? And as you said, it comes so naturally to us, right? When it comes to friends, to loved ones, to colleagues, even to strangers. But somehow we exclude ourselves from that, which is why, you know, when I was working on my book and I was thinking about like, what does it mean to me? Like, what is my definition of emotional fitness? I realized it's this, it's creating a more supportive relationship with yourself, your thoughts and your emotions. And most of us don't think about the relationship we have with ourselves, right? I never did until I burned out. And I think if anyone asked me this question, I'd be like, what? It's ridiculous. Well, who cares? But it is the most important relationship in your life because the way that we treat others is rooted in how we treat ourselves. And so, yes, we are more compassionate towards friends and people we love than towards ourselves. But if we're really honest about it, if you don't know how to be patient with yourself, you're not very patient with others. I used to expect perfection of myself and I expected perfection of everyone around me. And when I didn't get it, they got the wrath or the snapping of Natalie. If you don't know how to um, be aware and accept your own difficult feelings, you're not very good at helping other people get through theirs. I used to, because I was so uncomfortable with my own feelings, I used to be that mom, that friend, that colleague who, if you told me something you were struggling with, I would immediately jump in and try to fix it and give you advice. And you know what? That sucks. Because what I didn't give people was an opportunity to just share. I wasn't a great listener. I wasn't that compassionate. And again, these are some hard truths. This is, this is why courage is one of the qualities I write about in my new book. We have to have the courage to get honest with ourselves and to recognize that if we treat ourselves like crap, if we don't practice self-compassion and self-love and self-awareness, we're not very good at giving those things to others either. It's funny that you bring that up because I think a lot of people will be able to identify with what you just said, myself included, that a lot of the times when the people in their life start going through something, you want to be the person to just jump in and fix it right away. Mm -hmm. And that's instead of just listening and sitting there and sitting with them, you're like, all right, what can we do to get from point A to point B? Right. Um, I think a lot and that's of people, for two reasons, right. And for two reasons. And I think it's so again, important to just be honest about it. I think the first reason for many of us is we're not comfortable with difficult feelings. We mm -hmm. just aren't comfortable. And so we just want to go past them. 
The second reason is we do it from love. We really do want these people to feel better. And I think that's really important to give yourself credit for. Like, you're not being an ass. You just want the person to feel better. And then to recognize that it's not bad to give advice. I'm still a good, like I, I'm pretty good at thinking about solutions to problems and I love to share that it's not bad. It's that there's a step before then. It's that before the person is even open to hearing you out or hearing a suggestion, they need an opportunity to accept their feelings and they need mm-hmm. you to help them to feel that it's okay to just feel how they do for them for the time being, not forever. Yeah. You know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, people tell me like, yeah, but if I don't like offer a way to move forward, aren't I just giving this person the message that they should, I want them to feel badly? No, you're giving the person the gift of what your grandmother used to give to you just being able to be how they are and to express it and not feel the pressure to feel better. And often, just like when you do that with your own feelings, the research I shared, that actually gives you a little bit of a lightness that allows the other person like, oh, okay. Like, you know, I cannot tell you how often I'll hear this from my friends. Like, you know what, now that I've said it to you, kind of not as much of a deal anymore or something like that. And so there's a place for advice and there's a place for fixing and there's a place for like rolling up your sleeves and being like, all right, let's think about this. But it's just not the first step. And that biggest first gift that we can give to each other is that gift of acceptance of, yeah, tell me how you're feeling, being the grandma. That's so true. Being the grandma. I love that. Yeah. Um, So today we've talked about, we've talked about courage and the importance of self-care and how all of this plays into emotional fitness. And this is all in your new book. And one thing that I love about talking to you, Natalie, is that everything that you say is backed by your own experience and by like actual research. And I know that's how your book is set, right? So I want you to tell everybody where can they get your book? How can they read your book? Where can they learn more about the awesome human project and you? Yes, I love the question. And um, so my book is called The Awesome Human Project, Break Free from Daily Burnout, Struggle Less and Thrive More in Work and Life, which is what we've been talking about and more. And in it, I share the five science-backed emotional fitness skills. There's actually a five-week challenge you go on and super tangible, simple practices, because that is how I make all this research uh, practical for myself is I don't just want to read about this stuff. I want to understand like I have 15 minutes how I do it. Um, and so the book is on sale on February 8th, and you can pre-order it now and order it later at your favorite bookseller. But for more info on me, the book, to check out some of the illustrations I did myself, Madison, um, for the book, which is a big uh, move for me, just go to nataliecogan.com and you can't miss it. All right, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us here today on Success Stories. I love talking to you, and hopefully we will chat again here on Success sometime soon. I always really, really appreciate your thoughtful questions, Madison. And this time around, I want to tell you, you gave me a lot of gifts, both as a daughter of your mom and talking about your grandma. Uh, It grew my heart a little bit. So thank you for you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll see you soon. This has been Success Stories with Madison Piper. If you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe, drop a review, and tell your friends. If you'd like to hear more shows like this one, go to success.com slash podcasts.